Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're actually picking up right in the middle of uh, Peter's speech in verse 13, so I want to read it in context, uh, beginning at verse 5. Acts 4, verse 5. Hear the word of God. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many of, as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, have we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. And when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over forty years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is uh, not only an instruction for us, but it was written for your glory. And it is our desire as we listen to it, as we respond to the preaching of your word, Father, that you would receive our worship and uh, that you would uh, help us to not only glory in your word, but to live it out to your glory in uh, this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> this past Thursday, I reluctantly ditched uh, what I was planning to preach on from this passage uh, because I really felt that the Lord wanted me to talk about leadership of a different stripe. We're going to be contrasting the leadership of the Sanhedrin with the leadership of Peter and John. And there are a lot of other lessons in this passage that we're just going to completely skip over. For example, uh, this is probably one of the key passages that deals with godly civil disobedience. And I'm not going to deal with it. Um, we may deal with a similar passage in, in chapter 5 uh, later on. There are some other lessons, including the one that was uh, posted in your notes that uh, we're not going to touch on today. But this passage really does give us a wonderful insight into what godly leadership looks like. Uh, this was leadership under testing. 
You can tell what a, a leader is really made of when he is put under enormous pressure and under enormous stress. And what's unique about this passage is there was a stark contrast between the leadership of the Sanhedrin, and they too were under pressure. If you look at it from their perspective, there's a lot of stress that they're facing. Contrast their leadership with the leadership of Peter and John. And I want to focus, if you're taking notes, on five contrasts that we can see, uh, five major contrasts. The first contrast is a contrast in leadership training. The leaders of the Sanhedrin were all trained in a totally different uh, method than the one that Jesus used with his apostles, and verse 13 gives us some hints as to the differences that existed. If you look at verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Uh, the word marveled means to be astonished, uh, even as some say thunderstruck. Uh, they're speechless in verse 14. They don't quite know what to, to make of this. His boldness of words and his effectiveness of ministry was something that they had not anticipated. In fact, their philosophy of education made this something that was astonishing to them. And so it ought to make us sit up and say, whoa, if they're really astonished, if they're marveled, there's something here we need to examine. And I want to examine uh, that in detail, what that is. Now, obviously, the Sanhedrin expected uh, Peter and uh, John, these fishermen, to be utterly intimidated in their presence. Um, they were not Ivy League um, graduates. Uh, they were not part of the in crowd. This could very easily have been an intimidating scene. So if you just picture what's going on, the Sanhedrin is the supreme court of the land, and all of the aristocracy has gathered together to judge uh, these two people here. Now, these are the people with the most learning, the most wealth, the most power, the most connections. They spoke with authority. They probably spoke far better Hebrew than these fishermen did. But the words that came out of Peter's mouth in verses 8 through 12 threw them for a loop. They didn't know quite what to make of that. Rather than being fearful, Peter and John are bold. Rather than being shaken, they have a presence of mind. Rather than being intimidated, uh, they have confidence and authority. Rather than being defensive, they are on the offensive, even accusing the Sanhedrin of murder. Rather than saying, I think, they spoke with certainty. Uh, rather than compromising, they spoke of Christ as being the only way. Uh, when I went to the underground uh, training seminar in Elkhart, uh, Indiana, uh, earlier this fall, I was able to witness uh, several uh, high school graduates and college graduates who had gone through a nine-month intensive training, leadership training, uh, uh, in the previous year or two, and it was amazing to see the kind of things that I've just outlined here so obviously on the surface in these young men uh, and, and some of the young women that were there as well. Uh, things that I've outlined from chapter uh, 4, verses 8 through 13, and it was a leadership model that he summarizes in five C's. Now, there's other aspects to the leadership training as well. We're going to look at those five C's in a moment. But it was the leadership training that Jesus Christ used. And I want you to, first of all, notice that the words of the disciples remind the Sanhedrin of the way that Jesus used to speak. Verse 1 goes on to say, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. 
There weren't any other leaders that they knew of that spoke uh, in the kind of way that uh, these people did. And there was something about the leadership of Peter and John that transcended credentials. In John 7, verse 15, they say exactly the same thing about Jesus. Same word is used about marveling. The Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? There was something about his character, something about his presence that transcended the credentials of the word, world. And the two Greek words that are used in chapter 4 for uneducated and untrained are words that refer to the credentialing process that went on in the rabbinical schools. <clears throat> the first word is literally unlettered, and dictionaries point out it doesn't mean that they thought that they couldn't read because all Jews could read back in those days, very literate society that had all been trained in that, but rather it's a reference to being unlettered in the uh, rabbinical formal education that the rabbis went through. The rabbis had to memorize massive amounts of uh, information about what this and that and the other rabbi and scholar held to, and uh, uh, that was the bulk of their uh, edu ed education. And so John 7, verse 15 is basically saying Jesus didn't have a degree to his name. Now, isn't that interesting? Didn't have a degree. One dictionary says the first word in Acts 4.13, unschooled, probably in the sense of not having a formal rabbinic education. Another dictionary says it refers to a lack of formal rabbinic training. In other words, Jesus, John, and Peter did not have a Master of Divinity degree. <laughs> uh, that's basically what it's saying. The second word uh, refers to non-professional. The rabbis had professionalized the pastorate, and you couldn't be a professional until you had jumped through a requisite number of hoops. Now, with that as a background, I think you can see this verse says a lot about the Bible's philosophy of education. Uh, the Bible does not consider you to be educated simply when you have stuffed your head full of facts. Uh, Luke 6, verse 40 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher, right? So it's not just dealing with facts. The Bible talks about education as being a transference of life, of character, of competencies from one person into the life of another person, which means you've got to spend a lot of time with that teacher. Uh, Mark 3, verses 14 through 15 says, Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. So he taught them, he showed them how to do it, and then he sent them out on challenging assignments uh, where they're tested, where they can practice that. Now, Jay Adams, uh, quite a number of years ago, wrote a, a book, Black, Back to the Blackboard, that applies some of these principles to the training of our children. I don't think he went quite far enough, but I found it to be a marvelous book back when I originally had uh, read that. And I'm going to initially apply this to pastors, but really this applies to leadership across the board. I think this passage says at least this. We shouldn't think that degrees make a pastor. In fact, seminary education, I will be bold enough to say, is probably one of the worst ways that a pastor can be trained. I'm convinced that that is true. There are seminary professors who believe exactly the same thing. They do not believe this is really the biblical model for teaching, but they feel stuck in the system, so they continue to use it. I think 
the church really needs to rethink this whole area of the training of ministers. By bringing on interns, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get a little bit closer to the biblical model. It's still not exactly where the biblical model is, but typical seminaries where people go off to get their learning do not even remotely resemble the kind of education that God had set up in the Old and the New Testaments. Instead, ironically, they resemble the educational method used by the Pharisees and used by the rabbis. Uh, It's a very interesting thing. The rabbis considered education to be filling your head with all kinds of information and getting people to be able to spit that information out. And even though they were Hebrews, ironically, they had done away with the Old Testament apprenticeship model and they had instead adopted a very popular Greek model of the classroom. It was a totally different approach to education. So Jesus completely bypassed that education. Remember, it says that he was not lettered in the rabbinic method of education. He bypassed that. He made his disciples bypass that. And the only apostle who had been lettered in that way was the apostle Paul. Uh, He was lettered. He was credentialed. He was professional according to Philippians 3. And yet, what does Philippians 3 say about that? He says, what things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the things that were transformational in his ministry. And there are the five C's that I learned uh, in that uh, underground church uh, leadership training seminar. First C is Christ. Paul said that it was knowing Christ knowing Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, knowing Him in, in, in terms of identifying with His uh, death, Th- those were the things that were transformational and foundational to His ministry, and yet that is missing in the traditional model of preparation for the ministry. In fact, when many people look at those verses, uh, sometimes they wonder, what exactly is Paul saying to know Him and the power of His resurrection? Uh, What does it mean to be conformed to his death? You cannot learn that from books. You can only learn it by being with Jesus. Uh, And I think one of the most important preparations for the ministry, for motherhood, for fatherhood, for any other kind of leadership is knowing, developing union with Christ, learning what it means to be led by Christ, to be empowered by Christ, to... to, Uh, have uh, His empowering, working through you, that is foundational uh, to ministry. The power of their ministry in Acts chapter 4 came, according to Luke, from being with Jesus. And if you bypass that, there is no amount of book learning that's going to give you their kind of leadership uh, in your life. The second C for Paul was community, development of community. And Christ established a community within which these disciples could learn It was a community of 12. He also introduced them to the home community and to the larger church community. But it's within those relationships that the first C uh, becomes important and the third C becomes uh, possible. Uh, Just as an example, why does God have us be born into families where we've got all kinds of sinful brothers and sisters? Why couldn't we be just by ourselves? Well, it's in the context of having to put up with and deal with all of these sinful brothers and sisters that you learn how important it is to be united with Christ, receiving His grace, and that's the place where the, the character, which is the third C, is most powerfully developed. You're going to completely miss out on that if you're just a single all by yourself, although there's still some of that. You can't completely miss out on it because you've got sinful parents, right, <laughs> that you've got to deal with. 
but uh, it's in community that the first and the third C's really are lived out. The third C in Philippians 3 is character. And likewise, in this chapter, it was the apostles' character as much as their knowledge that blew these Sanhedrin people away. Um, leadership training that fails to deal with character issues is just asking for trouble to happen. Uh, character has got to be developed in our children. It's got to be developed in pastors. And uh, there's an incredible contrast in this chapter between the character of the Sanhedrin leadership and the character of Peter and John. Fourth C for Paul was calling. And throughout this chapter, Acts chapter 4, what sustained the disciples <clears throat> when they were being opposed was their sense of calling. It was um, uh, a sense of calling that made them feel, we cannot but speak. And this call, idea of calling does not just apply to the ministry. When mothers are convinced that they have been called by God to minister as mothers, and um, presidents of a company or others, when they see their calling as being from God, it gives them an ability to every moment of the day be doing what they are doing as service to the Lord, even if it's a slave, Colossians 3 says. And so the sense of calling really goes far beyond ministry. Your sense of calling will change what drives your sense of significance. Let me repeat that. Your sense of calling will change what drives your sense of significance. And I think too many leaders are driven by a need for significance that is foreign to the Bible. In fact, they're driven by exactly what was driving these Sanhedrin people. What, what are the things that make them feel significant? Well, credentials would be one of the things that made them feel uh, important, climbing the corporate ladder, a sense of security, power, popularity. Actually, they weren't real popular, but popularity within their immediate circles. They didn't want to be pushed out. And that was what made some of these uh, Sanhedrin people who became believers quiet about it. They became secret believers because they feared what the Sanhedrin would say. Everything that motivated them shows that their calling, their sense of calling, came from man, not from God. Okay, they were driven by what men think, not by what God thinks. And the scripture says they were fearful of losing their jobs to Rome. Okay? It was a man-centered sense of significance. So calling is a powerful antidote that godly leaders need to gain. The fifth C is competencies, and seminaries do provide some of the competencies that are needed. Uh, that's where they focus, but not nearly all of the competencies that need to be learned by pastors. Uh, most competencies are only learned on the job when you watch others doing the job and you try it. Uh, you go out and try it. Jesus was constantly showing the apostles. He was getting them to try it. And then he was sending them out on challenging assignments that stretched their abilities. I think we need to do the same thing with our children. We show our children. We instruct them. Let them try it. Give further feedback. Then we send them on assignments that are higher than what they're able to do that really stretch them, that challenge them. That's the only way their skill sets are going to be, are, are going to be growing. And so really there's a lot that is assumed in verse 13 and that's illustrated in the other verses as well. The negative that they were unlettered and uncredentialed men shows what we should not be driven by. And the positive that they had been with Jesus shows that um, uh, everything of those five C's really flowed initially from union with Christ. Later in the book of Acts, Paul ditched the method that he was trained in when he trained Timothy and Titus and John Mark and 
some of the other leaders that uh, he had engaged in. So keep this verse in mind, and there's many other verses, when you're thinking about education. It's not just, I think, that our, our, our denomination uh, really ought to rethink how we do the education of pastors, but I think we need to rethink how we do our homeschooling. I think homeschooling is a great way of pre preparing and raising up leaders, but if your focus is only on the academic and not on a rounded transference of, of competencies and character into the lives of your children, you're missing out on uh, incredible advantages because I think it's a context in which uh, leadership development can thrive. The second contrast we see here is a contrast of results. Verse 14, seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Now, I think it implies they wanted to say something against him, that he was a fake, but they could not. This man testified to the power and the presence of God in the apostles' ministries. Now, obviously, it did not convert those uh, leaders, did it? Good results, didn't convert them, but it did stop their mouth. It did leave them without excuse. Dr. Harry Ironside, in his early ministry, was walking down the streets of San Francisco and he ran across a, a group of Salvation Army people who were putting on a service, and the captain uh, called over to Dr. Ironside and said, hey, could you come over and uh, preach, the uh, preach the sermon for us? And he said, sure. After the sermon, there was a very well-dressed gentleman came walking up and handed him a card that he had been writing on, and on one side of the card was the name Arthur Morrow Lewis, who was a well-known agnostic lecturer, and on the other side he had written this, Sir, I challenge you to debate me with the question, Agnosticism versus Christianity in the Academy of Sciences Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. I will pay all expenses. Well, Dr. Ironside read the card out loud to the crowd that was there, and then he replied, Mr. Lewis, I already have an engagement for next Sunday at 3 o'clock, but if necessary, I think I could cancel it. I am disposed to accept your challenge and will if it is really worthwhile. But in order to prove that you have something worth debating, I accept on these conditions. First, that you promise to bring with you to the platform next Sunday one man who was once an outcast, a slave to sinful habits, but who on some occasion heard you or some other infidel lecture on agnosticism and was so helped by it that he cast away his sins, became a new man, and is today a respected member of society, all because of his unbelief. Second, that you also agreed to bring with you one woman who was once lost to all purity and goodness, an abandoned female sunk in the depths of depravity, but who can now testify that agnosticism came to her while deep down in sin and implanted a new hatred of impurity in her poor heart, putting a new power into her life and delivering her from her base desires and making her now a clean, chaste woman, all through disbelieving in God and the Bible. Now, sir, if you will agree to these conditions, I will promise to be there with 100 men and women who were once just such lost souls as I have described, but who heard the precious gospel of the grace of God, who believed it and ever since have hated sin and loved righteousness and have found new life and joy in Christ Jesus, the Savior whom you deny. Will you accept my terms? Well, he did not, but uh, that was showing a contrast in results. It was hard for these rulers to discount the, the effectiveness of their, of their leadership in verse 13 and to discount the results that they saw in verse 14. Results often speak for themselves. 
These disciples were able to do the things that Jesus did. And I've seen the results of the leadership training methods, of the underground church, even though those people are unlettered, uneducated, no accredited agency, you know, that's given them a degree, they have a power and they have an effectiveness in their ministry that I think many times is lacking with our traditional methods of education. I saw the same results in some of the American young people who went through the training. I interviewed a number of these people, and to me, it just blew me away to see the authority and the character and the competencies which are simply not coming out of the seminaries today. And it's no wonder to me that businesses around that area in Elkhart, they're just snapping up these young people as soon as they can get them because they have seen the results of what these young people have produced in their businesses. They've seen the change. I've seen the results of homeschooling academically, and they're far superior to the classroom. Uh, I think uh, homeschoolers, as I mentioned earlier, need to go beyond academics. They need to be instilling all five C's, but the potential is there. So we've seen first, contrast in training methods. Second, there's the contrast in the results, but then the sterility of the Sanhedrin and the life that was being produced by the apostles. Third contrast is pragmatism versus principled truth. All through the Gospels and all through the book of Acts, the, it shows that this Sanhedrin leadership was governed by pragmatism. In contrast, the apostles valued the truth. They spoke the truth openly. They were not embarrassed by the truth. The Sanhedrin was embarrassed at times by the truth. We'll look at some examples of that. And they openly opposed the truth. <clears throat> Their problem with Christ was not lack of evidence. They had tons of evidence. Their problem was a hard heart. They'd had their minds made up and they didn't want anybody to confuse them with the facts. Uh, people don't tend to be objective in any area of life. Uh, for example, people, people, you, you can, it doesn't matter how impressive your homeschooling has been or what the results are, your, your kids can be standing right there in front of them. There are some people whose minds are made up and they are so opposed to your teaching your children. They're going to oppose you all the way down the road. And this is one of the reasons why you need to not worry about what other people think. You've got to be driven by what God has given to you. In verses 15 through 17, we've got one of the most amazing descriptions of willful rebellion against knowledge. And we'll just begin with verse 15. When they had commanded them to go outside, uh, go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. First hint of their attitude to the truth, why do they have the people go out? I think there's a little bit of an embarrassment about the truth that may come back to bite them. Now, some people might say, well, isn't this just standard procedure? You just have closed session when you have discussion. But actually, if you examine the process, closed sessions were when the accused was there, and it was to protect the accused from having his dirty laundry uh, aired everywhere. Here, it was the leaders trying to keep people from finding out how they're covering their tracks. It was a cowardly leadership. <clears throat> there were a number of years when the progressives in our denomination, who are evangelicals and they believe the scriptures, but um, when the progressives used to have secret caucuses to try to figure out what kind of parliamentary maneuverings do we need to do? How do we get these people elected? You know, if the majority goes against this, it's going to go against what we're, we're thinking about. And they'd have these secret caucuses and it really frustrated the 
the um, conservatives. And there came a point where there was a small group of conservatives decided we're going to have our own secret caucuses and we're going to try to figure out how to do things. And they invited me to one of those uh, caucuses. And I said, no, if we cannot win these issues by openly airing what the issues are, discussing them, voting them up and down on the assembly floor, I'm not interested in winning the, those things because I'm not interested in manipulating the assembly through parliamentary tricks. Godly leadership should be interested in an open sunshine policy rather than secrecy. Now, one question that um, has been raised in a number of commentaries is, if everybody had to go out, how does Luke know what they said in there? And obviously, God could reveal it to him. But uh, one of the things that could have happened is that uh, one or more of the Sanhedrin could have been converted. And a couple of commentaries believe that since Paul was on the Sanhedrin, he probably was on the Sanhedrin at this point, so he would have been a likely candidate. Now, what's encouraging to me about that is that if God can convert a person like Saul, he can convert people who show even the, the willfulness of unbelief that is shown by the Sanhedrin here. To me, it's encouraging. Continuing to read in verses 16 and 17 saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Incredible description of willful unbelief. In verse 13, they acknowledge the power of Jesus in these apostles' lives. They can see the, they can see the, 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 the similarity. In verse 14, they don't deny that there is a miracle. Uh, and they know he's been healed in Jesus' name because Peter told him so in verse 10. In verses 15 through 16, they even admit among themselves, hey, there's a miracle that's happened. But rather than allowing this to make them submit to Jesus and say, yes, he is the Messiah, and yes, God is working through these apostles, in verses 17 and 18, they reject Christ. They oppose the apostles. So that it spreads no further among the people, it has severely threatened them that from now on they speak to no man in this name, so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. We need to realize that evidence is not enough to convert people. I think it's important, but it's not enough to convert people to the Christian viewpoint. Many times people know the truth and they hate it. They, they don't want to submit to it. And that's the whole argument that Paul gives in Romans chapter 1. People know about the existence of God. They know that they are sinners, and they don't care. It says in verse 18 that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Verse 32, it says, knowing God's hatred for such sin, they go ahead and do it anyway. And so, in contrast, Paul in Romans 1 says that he trusted the truth, thanked God for the truth, and was not ashamed of the gospel. I think this is a test for leadership today as well. How much do we leaders love the truth? Does it govern our lives no matter what the cost? Then we are statesmen in our families. We are statesmen on the job. Or is it a situation where we only appeal to truth when it's comfortable and when it will serve our own self-advancement? Then we're politicians. God wants us to be statesmen, standing for the truth even when it hurts. The fourth contrast can be seen in power versus authority. 
The Sanhedrin had no authority to be giving the commands that they gave, and the apostles knew it. These were not legitimate commands. It had no binding authority. But what happens when leaders lack authority? What do they tend to do? Well, they tend to resort to power plays, to control, to force, to intimidation. In homes, the way it manifests itself is husbands abusing their wives when their wives don't submit to them. Here in verse 17, it says, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. They're trying to scare the apostles into submission. Verse 21 shows them threatening them again and saying, if they could have gotten away with it, they would have disciplined them. They would have, um, they would have beaten them. In chapter 5, they do beat the apostles. It's a use of force, using power. But look at verses 19 through 20. The apostles do not respond in kind. They appeal to authority. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right, there is the issue of authority, whether it is right in the sight of God, there is the source of authority, to listen to you more than to God, you judge. He's appealing to their conscience. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So the apostles are not using force. They're using truth. And so this whole section is a contrast between authority and power. Power means being in control. Authority means being taken seriously. If a leader is preoccupied with power, he's going to tend to breed an organization that's either utterly passive or is rebellious. It is character, it is service that commands respect. Throwing our weight around does not command respect. Okay, it's exerting power. It may make us feel like we're in control for a while, but it is not exercising authority. And there are three spirits that um, many church leaders across America have said are just pervasive in the American church. It's the spirit of, <clears throat> spirit of Jezebel, the spirit of Absalom, and the spirit of Ahab. And it's just three different manifestations of the same thing, our fleshly desire for control. Jezebel sought to control the one in authority in various ways. If she couldn't control, she sought to destroy. Uh, she sought to control her husband and through her husband to control the kingdom. She had no authority to do that. Well, what happens when people don't have authority? They shift over to power and man manipulation is a form of power. Absalom sought to undermine authority. It was more passive, it was a manipulative approach, but he could tell these Israelites who were not getting justice, he was saying, oh man, I feel so sorry for you. If I was in control, you know, I'd be giving you justice, and I sure wish that you had justice given to you. And so he was undermining, through slander and innuendo, he was undermining David's uh, leadership authority. Every church eventually has Jezebels and Absaloms at some point in their history. What happens, though, is that the pastor gets fed up with all of the politicking and he falls into exactly the same game because he can't get his way by exercising authority, so he acts like Ahab did. <clears throat> and it's really, again, the same spirit manifested in a different way. Ahab was emasculated <laughs> in one sense by his wife, and so what does he try to do? He tries to do the same kind of power controls, and if you read history, you'll see he pitted one party over against another party. He had under-the-table deals. There was all kinds of ways in which he sought to manipulate things going the way that he wanted to do. David did not do that. He exercised the authority of God that God had given to him, and if he did not succeed, 
He just left the results up to God. Let me tell you something. It is so easy to act like Ahab did when your children or your wife does not submit to you. To fall into exactly the same trap that they did. It's important that you not resort to anger, manipulation, power plays to affirm your leadership. That's stooping to the same level Ahab did to Jezebel. You need to do it as a servant, patiently, persistently moving your family in the direction that God wants them to be. Because authority is interested in truth, leaving the results in God's hands, whereas power is interested in control. And we need to choose authority <coughs> as leaders. Now, of course, you can't have authority if you're not under authority, right? So it cuts both ways. The last contrast that I want to highlight is fear and frustration on the one side versus boldness and confidence on the other. It's the demeanor of these leaders. Now, you may think that the Sanhedrin leaders were not fearful. Frustrated, yes, but fearful? Could they really be fearful? And I would say absolutely, yes, they were. Let me read you some scriptures to show that. It's fear and insecurity that drives them. Acts chapter 5, verse 26. And the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. Okay? So they, they were not leading in terms of a love relationship with their people. Because they had opted to try to control the people, they have to use means of control that, uh, that uh, generate the same kind of you know, threats of violence. What do they generate? Desires for violence on the part of the people, right? And so um, it was a, a, a thing. Br violence breeds violence. Uh, power plays breed more power plays. By the way, I think this is one of the reasons why the communists in China are so paranoid about the church. They see a, a movement that's willing to resist their uh, unlawful authority at places, and they're not interpreting it within a Christian viewpoint. They're interpreting it from the perspective of their power, leadership, right? And so they're automatically assuming that these people are a threat. They don't realize the church is not interested in exercising that kind of power, but they see it as a threat. Mark 11, verse 18, and the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, that's destroy Jesus, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Now, isn't that interesting? They feared Jesus and the reason they feared Jesus was because the crowds loved him. Now, what are the Pharisees' desires with the crowds? It's to be able to control those crowds, right? <clears throat> we see uh, that their view of leadership, at the heart of it, is control and power. Well, here comes Jesus, who's opting for authority, and the people are loving what Jesus is doing. He's gained the respect of the people. So automatically, these power players see Jesus as a threat. They fear him. That's why they want to get rid of him. Mark eleven thirty two says that the leaders feared the people for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. It's an issue of insecurity. John is competition. Luke 20, verse 19, And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Here's a case where they feared that the people might find out about the truth. And so fear plays into one of the earlier contrasts that we looked at. Luke 22, 2, And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. And so it was fear all the way around that led to violence. They said, 
It says in, in John, they feared that Rome would take their position away from them. And if you re-examine the previous four points that I have looked at under leadership, you will see that fear, intimidation, and insecurity factor into why they have opted for a poor leadership model all the way through. Now, in verse 21 of Acts 4, fear saved the apostles from a beating. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. But later on, that same fear drives them to beat the apostles and to eventually murder, kill some of the apostles. And I believe that it is fear that drives much of the persecution of Christianity in third world countries. Because what they can't control, what they don't understand is something, you know, if I don't have control of it and you're driven by power and control, it is going to be something that is fearful. <clears throat> for them, control is at the heart of leadership. For the Christian, what's at the heart of leadership? It's servanthood, isn't it? Servanthood is at the heart of leadership. And servants opt for authority, not for power. They spoke with authority. It was the very authority of the king of this universe that they were speaking, but they did not consider it their role to be forcing people into what they've been telling them they need to do. These disciples did not, for example, start a political revolution to try to force what needs to happen within this, within this government. Their approach, though, was powerful in a different way. Their approach to leadership led eventually to winning Rome and transforming Western civilization. When you lead in your family, men, it is not your responsibility to force your wives to submit. The Bible does not say, husbands, force your wives to submit, right? The Bible calls us to, to love our wives, to nurture our wives, to... Uh, bring the word, to wash them with the water of our, the word, to lay down our lives for our wives. And when you bring the authority of God's word to play, God knows how to back up his authority. Now, sometimes he will not choose to change things because he's got other purposes in his mind, but it's not our responsibility to be changing people's hearts. Uh, that is God's responsibility to do that, and it does not matter if your family does not listen. Even though these apostles spoke with authority... The rulers were ignoring them. They were not listening to them, right? And, and the apostles could just stand back and relax about that and not worry about that because they have done their job. <clears throat> In verse 22, these apostles are satisfied with the results. They let them speak for themselves. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. No one could deny the power which had been working through these apostles. They could either hate it or they could submit to it but either way, it didn't matter, the apostles were being faithful. Why? They're exercising authority as servants of the Most High. And so they have the authority to proclaim, to minister, to heal, to warn, but they do not have the authority to force. And so if you can keep in your mind distinct the difference between power and authority, you will have made huge strides in your personal leadership. When you try to opt for power and control, you're going to end up being frustrated all the time because you can't change human hearts. That's what power is trying to do. You cannot do it. In fact, those who opt for power plays will oscillate back and forth between arrogant bossiness on the one side and timid silence on the other side, depending upon the reactions of people who are around them. Let me just illustrate that. 
um, uh, from the lives of two pastors in Germany under the Nazi government. <clears throat> Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor who opted to exercise authority and to speak with authority even if it meant that he would lose his position. He continued to preach what he believed God wanted him to preach. He was arrested, he was executed, and some people might have thought that uh, it was, his method was a failure. But you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer continued to have and exert uh, influence even to this day. The other pastor was Martin Niemöller. He was a Lutheran pastor at the same time, 1930s. Like many Christians, he had a lot of qualms about the Nazis. He didn't like what they were doing, but because they left him alone, he continued to lead a quiet life. He was convinced of this. Because he had no power to make any difference right now, he felt he could have no influence. What well, was a totally faulty view of, uh, of leadership. Power is immaterial to the exercise of your authority. It is immaterial as leaders. Now, at the time, he didn't see that, but after the war, here's the confession that he made. In Germany, they came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me, and by that time, there was no one left to speak up. Those who opt for power rather than authority probably thought that Niemöller was making the right decision. What can one powerless person do in the face of so much evil in society? They said, yeah, that's the right decision. If you don't have the power, just back out. You know, don't do anything. But it was Bonhoeffer who had a lasting influence, not Niemöller. And if you are a leader, and every one of you are either leaders or you're going to be leaders, even you mothers are leaders under authority who have the authority of God. Every one of us is under authority. In fact, we don't have authority without being under authority. And so you need to listen up and you need to opt for authority, not for, um, uh, not for power. Exercising authority as a servant leaving the results to God, being faithful and realizing God can change people's hearts. Let, let me end by summarizing the difference between a sense of significance. The world, I think, many times gains a sense of significance through success, popularity, and power. Well, if it looks like everything that you're doing is not going to have a success, what does it do to your sense of significance? It ruins it. It makes you feel terrible. If you don't have popularity, what does it do to your sense of significance? It takes it away and it makes you want to compromise so that you can maintain that popularity. If you've been exercising power... ...that our lives would look like verse 13, where people would come across us and they would be shocked that even though we're maybe uncredentialed as far as they're concerned, the impact that we are having in the lives of other people. And the reason? Because they see that we have been with Jesus. It's union with him from which all of the rest in this section flows. And so I urge you to take the same course of action that Paul took where he set aside the, the um, world's leadership as rubbish and he sought the five C's of leadership training that are outlined there in Philippians 3. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for sending Christ so that we could see in him 
modeled what it means to be a godly servant leader. Uh, you have said in 1 John, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as Christ loved us. And yet you say it was not a new commandment, but a commandment we've had from the beginning. And the newness of it really comes from seeing Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would see Jesus. We would not only meditate upon him, but we would experience the reality of his power working in and through us. Father, I pray that the five C's of leadership uh, training that Paul said were transformational in his ministry would be transformational in our homeschools, would be transformational in every aspect of what we do. May you receive the honor and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.